Hi, it's Malia, and this is Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 11. And this really is a chapter of Lies of the Magpie, not a joke in a story like last week. And for those of you who are just tuning into Chapter 11 and missed the pseudo version, missed the psych version of Lies of the Magpie last week, sorry you missed it, it's gone, I'm taking it down. The chapter was not where I wanted it to be last week. I actually completely rewrote it from the existing versions. I've added new stories I hadn't written about before, and I've done a lot more weaving and tying together why all of these different stories are important and have played a part in bringing me to where I am, driving alone to Tucson in labor and setting up for how all of these events are going to impact what happens in the year to come. So a lot more content, a lot more meaning behind the content. And also, if I do say so myself, much better writing. Without further ado, I present this improved chapter. Lies of the Magpie, Chapter 11 On our drive home from the Wigwam Resort, where the Goodwin Annual Meetings had been held, Aaron and I compared notes about his conversations with other brokers and my conversations with their wives. Everyone was talking about real estate. Home values had skyrocketed over the past year and kept climbing and climbing. Houses were selling like crazy for top dollar. One of our neighbors, while he was hammering his for sale by owner sign in the front yard, had a man pull up and offer him $20,000 over asking price. Many of our friends who had purchased their starter homes the same time as us were selling and moving into more bedrooms, more square footage, and swimming pools. The theme of the broker's conversations was sale prices, investment properties, and net worth. The theme of the spouse's conversations was school zones and finding fabric for window treatments. Two brokers, Dell and Jeff, had recently closed on their third property. How are they affording that? I asked Aaron. They are leveraged to the hilt, he explained. I think Dell and Jeff are in a competition with each other to see who could handle the most debt. He rolled down the window to let the fly that had been buzzing around our heads escape. You know, he said, we could sell our house for almost double what we paid for it. I love our house. I don't want to move, I responded. Besides, selling high also means buying high. We'd looked at new model homes and developments near us that were selling for four hundred dollars to $500,000. I hope that price includes a swimming pool and a butler, I noted. Not so. The price was for a basic house on less than a quarter acre without landscaping. Is the soil made of gold dust? I asked the realtor. He wasn't amused. I was so set against moving that I would never have predicted that nine months later, we would no longer own our white house. I also would have never predicted that nine months later, I would be close to delivering our fourth baby. The question for Aaron and I was never if we wanted more children. The answer for both of us was a resounding yes. We both came from large families. I couldn't imagine life without at least a half dozen siblings. My siblings were my closest friends. And I believed that the greatest thing I could do for my children was to give them siblings. I especially wanted a sister for Kate. The question was never if, but when. Aaron was 29. I had just turned 30. Not for a couple more years, we both agreed. 
With more kids, we will eventually need a bigger house, Aaron remarked, watching out the windshield at the fields of commercial roses as we drove by. This might be the best time to sell. You're right, I agreed, but not the best time to buy. How do we sell our house without buying another? Aaron changed the conversation by squeezing my hand. His demeanor grew serious. I really want to apologize for Saturday night. I didn't mean to leave you at the table. I didn't do it on purpose. I guess so frustrated about the whole money thing. I just wanted the whole thing to be over. I wasn't thinking. I'm so sorry. I squeezed his hand back. I haven't even thought any more about it, I said, assuring him it wasn't a big deal. I won't even remember it next week, I said. But I had thought about it. Constantly. And I would remember. Every day for the next week and long beyond that. After arriving home from the weekend, I unpacked my suitcase, which included a new outfit I'd bought on an afternoon shopping excursion, as well as the new information I'd picked up about Aaron's perception of me. With Laya's help, I rehashed the table scene over and over, while I cut Tanner's pancake into choo-choo train slices, while sewing the missing eye back on Danny's stuffed Winnie the Pooh bear, while round-brushing Kate's new bobbed haircut. Together, Laya and I analyzed every word and action from that evening. And though we didn't doubt that Aaron felt remorseful, we both agreed that what happened spoke volumes and revealed Aaron's true, deep-down, subconscious feelings about me. The Bible says a woman should be a helpmeet for her husband. The problem was that over the past year, I'd said no to too many things. I had declined hosting Aaron's client Christmas party. I had rejected his desire to travel for Christmas. I didn't always have dinner ready when he got home, and he would have to jump in and throw dinner together. Aaron had to cook dinner more often than he should. And I didn't keep the house clean enough. Despite trying to keep our life simple and organized, the house was usually in disarray when he arrived home from work. He would enlist the kids' help, and before I finished my last lesson, he had the house tidied and dinner ready. He made my job look so easy. Most of the time, I was so unorganized that he had to bail me out. The truth was that he helped me more with my work around the house than I helped him with his work. I hadn't done anything to help him earn that award. I was a non-contributor. It made perfect sense why he hadn't taken me to the stage with him. Even though Aaron had apologized and we returned to life as normal, the feeling of that night lingered. I was left with an indelible stamp of memory, a burning sensation of humiliation branded on my insides. The memory cemented in my gut, a rough stone statue built in remembrance of the woman who wasn't enough. Touring the city of Rome a few years ago, Aaron and I had seen hundreds of ancient statues, marble bases with chunks of torsos, missing faces, and appendages. Then we walked further and found the missing pieces, piles of heads, arms, and legs scattered loosely on the ground, a strange macabre scene, as if someone had been bowling and rolling the stone heads across the lawn to knock down stacks of legs. While I drive, these labor contractions churned the chunks of stone in my gut, making the jagged edges of memory slice my core with each rumble and pull. In the rearview mirror, my face is pasty white, my hairline is matted down, wet with sweat, My forehead is clammy and moist. On the outside, I am soggy, looking as though I've been through a rigorous gym workout. 
Inside, my throat and even my bones are dry, parched like the desert ground around me. A part of me wants to stop, to pull the car over and call for help. I can't go on like this. If something doesn't change soon, I will never survive this drive. Laya's face appears behind mine in the rearview mirror. You've got to do this, she says. Don't cave. So the road continues to roll under me, mile after mile passing beneath my tires, without seeming to get me any closer to Tucson. I think of the miles I've covered in the past 11 months. Have they brought me closer to being enough? So enthralled with my new scars, I hardly noticed that the awards banquet also left its mark on Aaron. In the months following the table incident, while I was ruminating about how I could squeeze more impressive endeavors into my life, Aaron was looking for an exit strategy to leave Goodwin altogether. I didn't clue in right away. As long as I'd known him, Aaron was always on the hunt for new business opportunities. Usually I listened to his latest brainstorm, nodded at the right places, and anticipated a different new idea the next day. So I didn't pay much attention to how Aaron was becoming increasingly restless with work. He made passing comments about how moving people's money from CDs to mutual funds, from bonds to insurance annuities, wasn't stimulating. I'm not challenged, he'd say. I get paid a ridiculous amount of money for the little work I do. At heart, Aaron is a builder. He'd built this business, started it from scratch, labored to get the flywheel turning. Now that the machine was rolling, he was no longer motivated by the day-to-day repetition of making dollar upon dollar by rolling over IRAs. All day, for eight hours, he conversed with gray-haired people about facing the end of their life, about death, grief, and trust funds. The job was old. What Aaron wanted was to jump into the real estate market. That fall of 2004, everyone from the produce man at Fry's grocery store to the garbage man who waved to Tanner every Tuesday had purchased rental properties. Aaron could smell opportunity, but it wasn't in buying high, so where was it? Home prices were climbing so fast people couldn't keep up. Buying and selling properties was the constant conversation around work water coolers on the playground during mom's group and in the parking lot after church. People questioned why we weren't buying into our share of this cash cow as if we were fools missing out on the investment opportunity of a lifetime. We questioned ourselves too, but I held my ground that I didn't want to move. It nagged at Aaron and he scoured for ways to work the trends in our favor. While Aaron hadn't figured out how to make the real estate thing work, he had found something else that would. The month of October, Aaron didn't talk about his usual thread of 20 different business opportunities. He talked about one, printing. Whenever Bob came into the office to discuss Aaron's ad, Aaron quizzed him about his publication. Bob had worked in newspaper and printing industry since high school. He was a well of information. Aaron was intrigued. In the evenings, he started showing me numbers, spreadsheets filled in with potential revenue sources and streams of residual income. We could run this business in a few hours a week, he'd say. What's more, we could run it together. It was our dream. We could work from home. Aaron could have more time with the kids, and I could have time away from the kids. In November, I went out business contacting to test the market. Aaron designed a logo and printed business cards. 
we created an LLC and bought a business license. I also began, to my surprise, suspecting that I was pregnant. In December, we signed a contract to partner with Bob and co-own a Southwest edition of his publication. We decided our first issue would come out in April. In January, I sold my first official advertising contract. Now that I'm in this car driving, choking down contractions, I wonder why the Malia of 10 months ago was so bent out of shape at being left at the table. She was so consumed with being left out, with not being noticed, with not having something more significant to contribute with her life. Ha! What I would give right now to be left alone sitting at a table with nowhere I had to go, no appointments, no last-minute crisis calls needing my attention, no staying awake all night proofreading in order to make the next morning's print deadline. If I could, I would march right back through the chaos of the past 10 months and tell that version of Malia, sitting alone at the banquet table, to just stay put. Honey, if you knew everything you're going to do in the next 10 months, you would sit right here, soak in the stillness, and not move one muscle more than you have to. I would bask in being left alone. I would bask in sitting at a table. I would bask in sitting, period. But that version of me, poised ladylike in the black cocktail dress, was only concerned that her life was too unremarkable. She wanted something bigger, something more noticeable, something more noteworthy. She wanted change, and honey, change was coming. In January, I found a babysitter for Tanner and Kate. By law, FCC regulations prevented Aaron from selling anything outside of financial services, so all the ad selling was up to me. The goal was for me to sell enough ad contracts for the first three issues, April, May, and June, so that Aaron could resign from Goodwin over the summer and come work with me full-time on the magazine. Bob wanted 40 advertisers for our first issue. I had a lot of work to do. In the mornings, Aaron dropped Danny to kindergarten at 7.45 a.m. and went to his job at Goodwin. I left the house by 8.30 a.m. wearing business slacks, full makeup, and my trusty hairpiece. Kate and Tanner came with me, and I carefully buckled them, trying not to get car seat sticky on my blouse. Three days a week, I took Tanner to the sitter and Kate to preschool. On Tuesdays and Wednesdays, I delivered them both to the sitter. Often when I picked them up, the sitter was on her couch watching a grown-up movie while Kate and Tanner fended for themselves on the floor at her feet. It wasn't my favorite situation. By our first issue, I'd sold 16 ads. It's not a bad start, Bob consoled. Combined with his 18 existing advertisers, we almost hit 40. I was proud. I'd sold the back cover and inside front cover, enough ad revenue to cover printing and mailing costs. Every other ad was income. By April, I was also growing larger. It was getting more challenging to maneuver the girth of my stomach in and out from the steering wheel each day. I tried to drink a lot of water to keep hydrated and minimize my risk of preterm labor. As a result, I knew the location of nearly every bathroom in the city of Goodyear. As days and weeks went on, my swollen feet grew tired of constantly pounding the pavement. Honestly, one of the main reasons this conference was so tempting to me was the chance to get away. I looked forward to going to this conference where the mills were included, 
This time I wanted to sit down at a table and I wouldn't care if I was left alone while everyone walked to the stage or wherever. I didn't want to walk. I wanted to sit. I wanted to stay in a hotel by myself. I want more than anything for these contractions to go away. I have been waiting for months for this chance to get away by myself, to lie down on a hotel bed. No one would know if I skipped a few classes or if I went back to my room after lunch and took a nap. Is there anything more glorious to a pregnant body than a nap? What calmed my contractions with Tanner was the hot bath. I need to make it to the hotel. Then I can soak in the tub, maybe even the jacuzzi if it's not too hot. I didn't bring a swimsuit. Ahead on the road, I spy a massive brown fur bunched in a pile, the remains of what had once been a living animal. Too big to have been a rock chuck, but too small for a coyote. It looked most like a small dog, but what would a dog be doing way out here? I should be disgusted that the animal's edible parts have been picked off, probably by buzzards, but instead of disgust, I feel relief at seeing signs of life. Though this brown furred animal was dead, the birds or whatever creatures had fed from its carcass were obviously alive, something out here has found a way to survive. I swerve around the heap of brown. The image reminds me of the day ten months ago when Aaron opened a package delivered to our mailbox and jumped back in terror as a mass of brown fur fell out of his hands onto the floor. It wasn't fur. It was my wig. If I've had a saving grace over this past year, it has been that hairpiece. I've worn it six days a week since the day Aaron dropped it on the kitchen floor. I'm wearing it now. It's digging into my head and I would be more comfortable driving without it, but I want to look nice when I arrive at the conference. Ten months ago, I would have never predicted that I would purchase a hairpiece. I would have never predicted the reason for which I purchased the hairpiece. Ten months ago, if I had had a fraction of an inkling that starting January I would be selling advertising for my own magazine and that I would be doing it pregnant, I would have never said yes to all the other things that came first. But I didn't know. I didn't have a clue. The only thing I knew last summer as the school year approached is that with Danny going to all-day kindergarten and Kate going to preschool three days a week, I would have so much extra time, and I needed something more fulfilling in my life. After the awards banquet, I had resolved to say yes to anything and everything people asked. The universe is quick to deliver. I wanted something more fulfilling to do with my life, and the universe stepped up big time to fulfill that want. After we returned from the awards banquet, not long before school resumed for the fall, our phone rang with the first of what would be a chain of opportunities for me to say yes to. Brother Stevens from the Church High Council was calling. Your name has been submitted as a possible teacher for early morning seminary this year. Yes, absolutely, I said without hesitation. I could hear his shock through the receiver. Don't answer right away, Brother Stevens urged. I didn't even want to call you. I know you have young children. This is a huge time commitment. It's intellectually and emotionally taxing. Talk it over with your husband. We usually like to give people more notice so they have months to prepare their lesson plans, but one of our teachers moved unexpectedly. 
Okay, I'll talk it over with Aaron, I told him, but I'm 99% sure my answer will be yes. I had been searching for something more I could do that wouldn't take me away from my kids or require using babysitters. This was the perfect solution. I could get out of the house doing something more meaningful than fixing broken toys. I would be back home before the kids woke up. They wouldn't even know I was gone. I told Aaron about the call. I want to do this. Why? he asked. I think it will be good for me. It will force me to wake up early and give me an excuse to study the scriptures. I needed more spirituality in my life. Every morning I set my alarm early with good intentions to wake up and feast upon the good word of the Lord. What would actually happen is that I would hit the snooze button multiple times, and then, rather than feeling enlightened and energized by the Spirit, I would spend the rest of the day feeling guilty. Tanner was 15 months old, I wasn't breastfeeding anymore, and he kept himself entertained. Tanner played with toys for hours. For the first time in our parenting life, Aaron and I understood what toys were actually for. Danny and Kate always used toys for other things. Tanner was the test group child who played with a toy exactly the way the toy maker intended. I would easily have two hours every morning to study and prepare a lesson. The whole situation was ideal. Anise didn't agree. Sitting on her patio one evening watching our kids swim in her jacuzzi, she said, You are going to be so tired. She had taught early morning seminary when Ashley was young. It's harder than you imagine. Hard for some women, I thought, but I am not some women. As I started reading the New Testament and studying the teacher's manual, I figured the hardest part of teaching early morning Bible class would be what to do with my hair. If I had to wash, curl, and style it every morning, I would have to wake up at 4 a.m., which was much too early. If I could find a way to get ready and out the door in under 30 minutes, then I could set my alarm for 5 a.m., which was far more doable. Teaching seminary without having my hair and makeup done was not an option. Picturing myself standing in front of my class of high school juniors and seniors, I remembered an incident that happened when I was a high school student. My best friend and I had seen one of our neighbors walking the high school track early before school. She gave us a jolly hello. We said hi in return. After she passed, we broke into furious giggles. I didn't even recognize her with those glasses, I said. I have never seen her without makeup, my friend answered. We laughed so hard our bellies hurt. A few hours later, we entered, ironically, into our seminary class to discover that this same neighbor was our substitute teacher for the day. She had obviously gone home from her walk to shower, blow her hair dry, and work whatever magic with her curlers, gel, makeup, and contact lenses. My friend and I looked at each other, our eyes wide with the amazing transformation. There was no way I was going to be that lady. High schoolers did not give respect easily. And if I was the old fogey lady showing up in robe and fluffy slippers, the chances of me keeping control of behavior in the class was close to none. So as much as my own eyes would prefer wearing Coke bottle glasses at that hour of the morning, I would be inserting contact lenses. Teaching seminary would require something I hadn't done since my college days. To be dressed with makeup, hairdo, and contact lenses five days a week before 5 a.m. 
which is one of the things that made me so excited and so certain that this was exactly the right opportunity for me. Reconnecting with the productive, accomplished girl I had been before having babies, tapping into my intellect, taking on an intellectual stimulating challenge was exactly what I needed. I'm not ashamed to admit that I prayed for a solution about my hair. This is how I know even the smallest and least essential prayers are answered. One day clicking through the channels, I passed QVC demonstrating hair pieces. Quickly, I pressed the back arrow on the remote until the channel stopped at a display shelf of curly hair in seven different colors. I watched the demonstration. In a matter of minutes, I could wake up, pull my unwashed hair into a greasy ponytail, clip in the curled extensions, and look like I'd spent hours styling my hair. I did the recommended color test, then called the number and made my first ever QVC purchase, paying $35 for medium brown. It arrived one week later. After Aaron dropped it on the floor, I bent down quickly to save it from a sticky ruin. I brushed dust and breadcrumbs off what I hoped would be a magic charm, capable of working miracles on a grand scale in my life. I untangled the strands of hair, smoothed the curls, and looked into the reflective oven door to fix the attached combs into my hair. Voila! In seconds, I had transformed from three-day unwashed limp hair to looking fresh out of a beauty salon. The sales lady on QVC had not exaggerated her promises. I approached early morning seminary with high hopes and great faith. My first week of classes were not the spiritual bursts of inspiration I had imagined. A weekend, the seminary supervisor called me on the phone. We've had issues with some students skipping class and coupling off in the janitorial closet, so you'll need to let parents know if their student didn't show up for class. After that, I spent precious lesson preparation time telephoning and having long conversations with parents. Two weeks in, I was exhausted. The fear of sleeping through my alarm and worries about my kids and the next day's lesson kept me awake way past bedtime. The novelty had worn off as well as my enthusiasm. This was not the spiritual enlightenment journey I'd hoped for. We were eight days in and I was questioning how I would make it until May. Anise had been right. So had Brother Stevens. This was so much harder than I'd expected. I never felt prepared enough for each lesson. It turned out Tanner wasn't happy and self-entertaining with Danny and Kate gone. He played fine as long as they were playing nearby. Once home alone, he wanted my constant attention. And I regretted signing up to be the art masterpiece volunteer for Danny's class at back-to-school night. I'd committed to that before seminary began. The month before, I was convinced I needed more in my life. Now I had too much. My schedule was overfull. I could not handle one more thing. Little did I know or suspect the even bigger surprises and challenges that were yet to come. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening to Lies of the Magpie. Have a great week. Stay well, my friends.